According to the PR Newswire, three in ten Americans lost their health insurance coverage in 2020. Furthermore, according to a new ValuePenguin.com health insurance survey, more than half of Americans did not buy new health insurance coverage and remain uninsured in 2021. Ed Eichhorn is the president of Metalink and the author of Healing American Healthcare. He has worked in healthcare product and service development for many years, fundraised for multiple institutions of higher education, and he founded a successful medical testing company which operated for 10 profitable years before being acquired. As a consultant, Ed has advised multiple medical societies during the development of Obamacare. He joined me this week to have an in-depth discussion about the state of American health care. I'm Kevin McShan. Let's have this conversation. Something we'll uh, touch on during our conversation. But, Ed, if you're ready, I'll welcome you to the program. And I'm excited to talk to you about the state of American health care. Great to see you this afternoon. And thank you so very much for being here. It's my, my pleasure to join you, Kevin. And I look forward to our conversation. As do I. So I wanted to get our, uh, your initial thoughts on the current state of American health care. Well, you know, I think American healthcare is a unique dichotomy. And the reason I say that is we have uh, a lot of extremely well-trained physicians. We have great medical schools. We have a number of uh, world-renowned uh, medical centers, and we have the lowest life expectancy among uh, all the nations of the Organization for Economic Cooperative Development of the UN, which is a group of 37 um, democracies. In addition to that, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. It's about $3.4 trillion a year, and it's 19% of our GDP. Most other nations are around 10% of GDP like Canada is. Uh, and in addition to that, with the highest expenses in the world and the worst outcomes in the world with respect to life expectancy, 29 million Americans don't have any healthcare insurance at all, and another 40 million are underinsured. So uh, almost 70 million Americans uh, don't seek healthcare until they are extremely ill, which makes uh, the opportunity for a good outcome more difficult. 
and the cost for their treatment much higher. And we also have incredibly high costs for pharmaceuticals. We pay about three and a half times more for um, patent covered pharmaceuticals than other nations do. So um, we have a lot of issues to address. In fact, when we wrote our book, Healing American Healthcare, the first line in the book is a quote from Winston Churchill. And he said this in 1941 during a cabinet meeting when his cabinet ministers were asking him over and over again when the United States would enter World War II. And finally, uh, Mr. Churchill said, the Americans will always do the right thing after, you know, after trying all other possibilities. So we are at that point, I believe, in healthcare in the United States where we've tried virtually everything. Um, universal healthcare has been a topic of political interest in the United States since 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt was running for president. Uh, and it's time for us to move forward. I think the good news is President Biden is expanding uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare and more people are gonna get coverage based on uh, what he included in the American Recovery Plan Act which is uh, largely based on improving our economy after the pandemic. So that's kind of where I think we are with healthcare in the US. And then I know that uh, you have created sort of a healthcare coalition newsletter that you are excited to tell me about. So I'm wondering if we could uh, dive into that a little bit. Sure, um, about a year ago, uh, my colleagues and I formed the uh, uh, Healing American Healthcare Coalition, which is uh, online at thehealingamericanhealthcare.org. And um, this is uh, an apolitical uh, effort. We are not Republicans or Democrats or in any other party. Our goal is to provide objective, useful healthcare information to healthcare professionals, especially during a time when they're extraordinarily busy with the pandemic that we've all been facing. So we, we launched the three minute read newsletter uh, for coalition members. We publish it uh, between two and three times a month. We monitor uh, 52 publications uh, and we monitor articles and we publish a summary of five or six articles every two weeks with our thoughts about the importance of that article for uh, members of our coalition. And our, um, our opening rates for that email are, are quite good. Uh, it varies between 35 and 45%. And the click-through rate to actually read or review those articles uh, ranges from 45 to 75%. Uh, which is extremely high in terms of, of newsletter opening. So we're very pleased that uh, members of our coalition actually appreciate getting those articles and, and thinking and, and commenting on them. And um, in a very junior way to compare to your very um, successful podcast, we do a uh, podcast of the articles for uh, anyone to uh, listen to where we describe the articles that we've reviewed and our thoughts about their importance to uh, healthcare. What's the name of the podcast? Uh, <laughs> Healing American Healthcare. Hence <laughs> uh, our discussion, absolutely. And I'm curious also to get your thoughts, Ed, with the pandemic. Uh, how, how do you think people are reprioritizing the importance of healthcare and, and looking at its delivery as well? Uh, that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about that, and that's going to be part of the subject of my next book. Uh, in the United States, we have underfunded uh, public health uh, for a very long time. Uh, and consequently, uh, when we were uh, hit with a pandemic, we were really not uh, ready from a public health perspective to deal with it. Um, 
And, and the other uh, aspect of the pandemic in the US is the um, um, uh, elected official management of public information. Uh, a blog that I wrote about three months ago is entitled, um, uh, Science uh, Doesn't Go Away If You Ignore It. And some of our elected officials, because of political pressure or their feelings about what they need to do in their states, actually didn't promote mitigation strategies. So they weren't promoting wearing masks and distancing and things of that nature that were recommendations of uh, uh, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So uh, we need to embrace science when it's important for our health. You know, um, in, in Canada, I believe uh, your population is around 37 million or so. About that, yeah. And, and you've had about a million uh, cases of uh, the coronavirus reported and somewhere uh, 23, 24,000 unfortunate deaths. Uh, in the United States, we've had 550,000 uh, cases. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 550,000 deaths and 30 million cases. And, and that's not, it's a reflection on our public health system and our political leaders management of this more than uh, our health system. Our health system really responded to try to take care of uh, this uh, incredible increase in patients. And, and I, so I think um, paying attention to and supporting public health is really important uh, to face pandemics like this. I mean, the incredible thing about the pandemic uh, on the positive side is how pharmaceutical companies have developed vaccines so rapidly to uh, help us all prevent, uh, you know, uh, getting the disease. And, uh, you know, I think that's a miraculous scientific discovery that we all ought to applaud because it's gonna make a, a huge difference over the next few years. Absolutely, and I know that when the creation of Obamacare happened, you uh, advised several societies about the development and implementation of Obamacare. So I'm curious to ask you about that experience and how you think uh, the American Healthcare Act is uh, uh, going. I know that President Biden made it uh, a priority to expand, as you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, anytime you want to make a major legislative change, uh, it, it gets very complicated because um, every um, industry or company that is going to be favorably uh, helped or negatively affected by the legislative initiative is going to lobby the Congress. And uh, during that time for the year uh, that uh, Obamacare was a legislative effort, um, there were lots of uh, lobbying meetings. Uh, I used to help uh, organize uh, fly-ins where our members would go and, and talk to Congress people. And uh, during that time, they set 15 minutes appointments and you had a 15 minute appointment with a staff member or the congressional representative uh, all day long. And more money was spent on lobbying during that time than any other time in our history. So it was a very uh, intense time for uh, legislators and uh, people who were um, uh, leading the bill. Um, the most important thing uh, about that time was uh, there was a public option that was originally a part of the bill in 2009. And um, obviously insurance companies lobbied against that because it might impact their revenue. Uh, so that was a, a big deal. And, and that bill, um, that part of the bill was also challenged. 
uh, because Sarah Palin, who had recently run for vice president, was a former governor of Alaska, was giving talks about death panels that were a part of the public option. Now, there were no death panels that were a part of the public option. There was a part of that that allowed for counseling uh, at the end of life that would uh, pay for counseling to help people make uh, very uh, serious choices when they were uh, facing the end of life. And she misconstrued that to be death panels. And that scared um, a number of uh, voters who went to their legislators and said, we, we don't want this public option because of this death panel. And that caused a number of leading uh, congressional people to move away from the public option as well as the uh, uh, pressure of lobbyists. So that, that uh, took away from the bill. And uh, that was one of the ways that uh, the Obama administration wanted to work to reduce the cost of healthcare. Uh, but I think it accomplished a lot of important things that we need to build on. First of all, uh, since that time, over the last 10 years, 20 million people every year have gotten healthcare that didn't healthcare, have healthcare before. And uh, it, it eliminated uh, pre-existing conditions as uh, a, a way to um, make healthcare very expensive for you if you had a pre-existing condition. Uh, it, the cost for you would be the same as anyone else, uh, which is very important. It also extended the ability of people to keep their children on their insurance until they were 26 years old, which was uh, certainly a, a very helpful thing. Um, and it also set a floor with 10 basic requirements for healthcare uh, so that uh, you know, it would eliminate some of those healthcare plans that just didn't cover basic benefits. Uh, so you know, I think it accomplished a great deal, but it was extremely limited uh, by not being able to have a, uh, a primary option, primary care option. In fact, in his recent book, uh, President Obama said that uh, the Affordable Care Act was the framework of a house upon which we could build in the future. And I think that's a good way to describe it because it began to move our country uh, towards a better universal healthcare system, albeit in a very expensive way. And I know that you shared the belief that a healthcare is not a priv privilege, it should be a right for all people and it shouldn't uh, cause people to go bankrupt. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of people and that share that same sentiment, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on why you feel that way. Well, you know, uh, having worked in healthcare uh, most all of my life, I, I've always believed that healthcare should be a foundation, uh, one of the building blocks of your life, so that um, you can do whatever it is you want to do with your life and know that if you need care, um, the care will be there for you. That's why I believe it should be a right instead of a privilege. And in the United States, um, as you mentioned about bankruptcy, about a million people a year um, go bankrupt in the United States and more than 60% of them go bankrupt uh, prior to the pandemic because of the cost of healthcare that they've encountered. And I, I just don't think uh, we should have a system that allows people to go bankrupt when they pay for the medications and surgeries that they need. In fact, one woman that I quoted in our book said that she was extremely thankful uh, for the surgeon, the cardiac surgeon that uh, cured her of her heart disease and uh, having to pay the bills was gonna kill her. So, you know, I, I think it's just really important for uh, um, uh, countries uh, to have a baseline healthcare system that allows you uh, to have the coverage that you need whenever it is you might need it during your life. 
Absolutely. And you had mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious to dive into your book a little bit more, Healing American Healthcare, and uh, the message that you are hoping to deliver through the publication. Oh, thank you. Well, um, Healing American Healthcare, um, the, the full title is a book is Healing American Healthcare, and the subtitle is Providing Care for Everyone While Reducing the Cost of Healthcare by a Trillion Dollars a Year. And the book takes uh, the reader through uh, the history of uh, improving healthcare in the United States, uh, how we got the Medicare Act passed in, in the 60s, and all the things that build upon making healthcare what it is today in the United States and why we need to improve it. Uh, so uh, the pathway through our book takes us to uh, discussing how to uh, plan the Icorn uh, Hutchinson uh, All Care Plan, and our plan uh, attacks the cost areas of healthcare uh, and makes some of them a little a bit more competitive. So we also call for a public option, and we priced out a public option in our book and explained how it could cost about thirty percent than the current private insurance costs in the United States. Uh, we discussed the idea of uh, why pharmaceuticals are so expensive. For example, in the United States, a study was done a few years ago that found that hospitals could mark up drugs or were marking up drugs by as much as 500%. Uh, a patient in an American hospital pays more for one Tylenol than you would pay a whole bottle uh, for a whole bottle of them in a drugstore in some cases. So. We think we need to control the price of drugs in hospitals. We think uh, we should be negotiating nationally as many other nations do on the price of drugs. We believe that uh, we should have a private insurance option that would reduce the cost of healthcare, but would make private insurance compete uh, with that cost. And I believe they could meet that challenge. Uh, we believe private uh, companies should, and employers in general should be able to have, uh, be self-insured buy private insurance or use the public option. Um, and we designed ways within our public option that would encourage private insurance to uh, develop plans to accompany the public option uh, to improve uh, their competitive capability. We also developed uh, uh, pathways to reduce waste um, and um, improve insurance coverage for um, employees around the country. So um, our plan creates choice and it creates competition, and it um, reduces the cost of healthcare if everything in our plan were uh, adopted by about 30%. And if we did that, we would still be the most expensive healthcare system in the United States, I mean, in the world, uh, we would be about the same price as the cost per capita in Switzerland. So, um, you know, we're also open to better plans. Uh, I often share the last line in our book is if you have a better plan, we'd love to hear it because, uh, we are uh, we we designed a plan that we we want to share with everyone, uh, but we also uh, would just like to end up with a better plan for people in America that would cost a lot less money that people could afford, in a way that doesn't uh, you know el eliminate their life savings if they get sick. And, and I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you think the hostile political system has played into the advancement or lack of advance, advancement on making sure that healthcare gets to everyone. And what lessons do you think the, the US government can learn from our Canadian government in the way we 
administer health care? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the Canadian government uh, uh, evolved into a system that set guidelines for all of the province and provinces and, and territories to uh, develop healthcare systems. And each of them, as I understand it, can be a little bit different, but they all have to provide universal health care. Uh, there are no co-pays and deductibles. People can choose the doctor that they want to go to. Physicians are able to make a, a decent living. Uh, and, you know, that basis uh, allows for a framework to, uh, to build health care system on. Uh, those guidelines from your federal government are very direct very straightforward and a majority of the cost of care is paid for through the federal government although each province does have some aspects that it has to uh, uh, fund uh, you also uh, you know uh, have some issues with uh, pharmaceuticals but you have a, a, a much better pattern by which your government decides the categories uh, which um, um, prices for new drugs will fall into, you know, uh, how extraordinary they are, what new, new things they cover, whether they cover existing um, conditions that are covered by other drugs. And, and so there are categories of pricings for drugs that are really uh, a good starting point. You know, in the United States, we have no um, way of pricing drugs like that. And in fact, people over the last five or six years have bought older drugs and then increased their price. Uh, as an example, there's a disease called the Williams disease, and it's a disease of the liver. And if a patient uh, develops this disease, they need to take Cuprinin, uh, which has been available for a number of years, for the rest of their lives to maintain their life. And uh, prior to that drug being acquired by a drug company from another company, it was $230 a month in the United States. They raised the price to $260 a pill uh, or about $23,000 a month. Uh, that pill's available in the most of the rest of the world for a dollar a pill. We need to address uh, problems like that. Um, we have a great law from 1983 called the uh, Orphan Drug Act, uh, and that uh, uh, encouraged the development for medications for people where only 200,000 or less people would uh, you know, have to deal with that disease. And it's been very successful. There's been 600 drugs developed over the last 38 years. But the price of those drugs has gone up by a factor of 64 times over those 38 years. We need to address things like that. We need to bring those prices you know, into uh, a framework that people can afford. As I've said before, uh, uh, in America, we pay over three and a half times more for drugs that uh, are patent covered, where the rest of the world gets them from pharmaceutical companies, 60% of which are US-based companies, for less than we pay for them in the States. So, you know, I think inequities like that need to be developed. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage our uh, uh, congressional uh, members and senators to actually begin thinking about these inequities uh, for the people of America and to try to um, be a bit more objective in listening to lobbyists that are going to represent companies that want to maintain uh, the revenue uh, that they have. We're in our plan, in our book, we're not um, suggesting we want these companies to go bankrupt. We want them to be more competitive. And, um, you know, I, I think that's part of the answer in a system like ours where um, a totally socialistic plan would not be accepted. The last thing I want to say is if you were starting from scratch and designing a healthcare plan, you uh, would do 
one of two things to start with. You would either have the government pay for all of the plans like the healthcare system in Great Britain and part of what you have in Canada, or you would follow the German plan, which says every employer will provide insurance. And I think that's the plan that would have uh, the best opportunity to be successful in the United States, to make sure that all employers provide insurance uh, and that uh, the government um, covers the people who do not have insurance through their employment. Uh, and I think that would get us to universal care in a, in a better way uh, uh, than the path we are currently on. And Ed, I know that you've been in healthcare for a very long time and you've been in product development and you've fundraised for educational institutions and you've also uh, founded a medical testing company uh, before it was sold that was highly successful. So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the arc of your own career and the most impactful uh, contribution you've made in the space of healthcare. Wow, well, let me, <laughs> let me try. Um, I started my career as a product development engineer at a large company named Beckton Dickinson. And I was involved in developing products to reduce the pain of injection. Uh, things like that. And uh, we were very successful at doing that. And I, I got to go out into the hospitals and observe the use of these products. And it was a rewarding feeling uh, to know that something that uh, I, I was a part of, that the team I was a part of went out and, um, you know, made a change that uh, in some small way decreased pain for patients. Um, and at one point in my career there, I was selected to spend six months in hospitals just looking at how we can make new products. And uh, working with another colleague, we found 55 ideas where we could help hospitals do a better job for patients. 19 of them actually became commercialized. And that was also a very rewarding thing. Um, for a while, I was the director of research at a kidney dialysis company, and we improved the design of dialyzers, uh, which was very important uh, for patients. And our, uh, later, uh, with colleagues, we started a testing company to evaluate the uh, adequacy of dialysis. And when we started, I actually, uh, when there were only four of us in the company, I went out and I did the testing uh, on the patients and uh, shared the data with their physicians. Uh, and uh, that was a very successful effort. And again, it was very rewarding to help people to get a better quality treatment for their uh, kidney failure. Um, and I also you know, had the opportunity to work in uh, MRI technology, uh, which was uh, also very rewarding. Uh, I, I took a little break from healthcare and was the VP for development at my alma mater and helped to raise money uh, for scholarships and uh, professors chairs and new buildings and uh, it's a very rewarding thing when you actually meet the kids that get the scholarships that you've been able to raise money for or to visit the opening of that brand new building with new labs and new classrooms and things of that nature. Um, today I'm involved with an inventor who's invented a new MRI machine that will um, you know, we're in the lab stages now, but it, uh, if the patents prove out, we're going to be able to introduce MRI technology to cardiology and, uh, you know, other areas where it, it just wasn't uh, an option in the, in the past. So I've always been interested in, in doing things that uh, I was passionate about and, and to uh, find ways to find solutions to, uh, you know, problems that people had in their healthcare or, or in their education. 
I'm sorry. I think I went on for a while there, but that's no, that, that, that's totally that, that's totally all right. You know, as a journalist, Ed, the more information you give me, the happier I am. So I I, <laughs> I can completely understand. But I'm also curious to get your opinion on, and uh, you know, and I was born with what's called um, spastic uh, quadriplegic cerebral palsy, which means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how do you think our healthcare system can better service people with disabilities? Well, you know, I, I think there's a lot that we can do. And, and uh, the, the most recent bill that President Biden uh, has proposed to Congress uh, to uh, take us back from the pandemic, it's a $2 trillion uh, bill and $400 million of it is for long-term care and improved uh, compensation for people that work uh, with people with disabilities that help, uh, you know, to provide services. And uh, I think that's a really important step forward. And it looks like that bill is actually going to pass uh, through Congress based on the news yesterday. Um, in, in the United States, uh, we have uh, a, an income support in Social Security that's income based and, and then the, uh, the individual gets more income. There's also a nutritional support law again, based on income for people uh, who have disabilities. And, you know, I believe that as a part of basic health care, those supports uh, functions should not be income-based. They should be support functions that allow the, a person with disability to have the most normal life possible. And uh, today, with telecommuting and uh, the use of computers and the types of employment that are uh, very important in a service community, I think there are more employment opportunities for people who have disability. The Americans for Disability Act that's been in effect for many years provides a uh, uh, a useful and effective um, uh, support for uh, people with disabilities in their employment, in transportation, and in housing. So, yeah, I think building upon the legislative past and the laws of the past, the new legislation that's being considered now should provide a, a platform and a framework for um, you know more opportunities for better quality of life and, and more employment for uh, disabled Americans. Absolutely. And my final question for you, Ed, is I'm curious if you had a parting message about the state of healthcare and what has you uh, most optimistic about its future? Well, I'm optimistic because I think um, changes and improvement in healthcare are um, things that people really want now. Um, you know, a lot of people have just avoided healthcare because of its cost or its bureaucracy. You know, um, to improve healthcare, we need to make have universal healthcare. We have to lower the cost of healthcare. We have to eliminate its bureaucracy. And if we do those three things in the United States, we will improve outcomes. And I think uh, uh, people around the country have a bigger appetite for that now. And it's time to build on that. And I think. The current administration, by including healthcare in the uh, American Recovery Plan Act and in the Infrastructure Act that's under consideration now, shows that, that the government, at least the administration, has a big interest in moving forward. Uh, you know, healthcare is not easy, and uh, changing big systems like this are not easy. And every country has some issue or problem that it is working on to improve some aspect of healthcare. And I think 
um, I think all of those things need to move forward in a way that uh, helps healthcare to be more than it is now and to meet the real needs that people have to allow them to, uh, you know, have the best uh, um, access to their life and their jobs and their family that they can have. And I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation about the state of healthcare in America and around the world. And I want to thank you for your uh, contributions in this space and for joining me this afternoon. Your time and expertise are most appreciated. And thank you so much uh, for joining me this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. And I wish you good luck in your journal journalistic career as you move forward. Thank you so much.